Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this episode 124 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 125th episode coming hot on the heels of, uh, <laughs> of the last the one. The biannual episode, just in, time, yeah. just in time for turkey. Just in time for turkey. Uh, we did all our, our stuffing and pie today, so and I believe the, the, the stock for gravy and everything, so uh, that'll be very tasty tomorrow. Wonderful. Um, so uh yeah i guess we should we should address our, our our friendly elephant that's sitting in the corner here of both of our respective offices um is that we haven't done an episode in six months and our apologies for that thank you for uh, not deleting us from your podcast feed yes much appreciated um if you are listening but if you have i guess we don't thank you uh, in fact we, we think very poorly of you but uh, i guess you weren't hearing me say that so it really is no <laughs> consequence to you uh yeah so uh, about that um we, we would like to keep doing the show, and we will, we will keep doing the show, and hopefully we will not have any more six-month absences. Uh, we've both had various professional developments in the last couple of years that have kept us, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily busier. We've both, we've always had very busy jobs, but uh, busier in directions other than following what's going on in Parliament at all times uh, at a very granular level, which, which used to be, I think, a big part of both of our jobs. So, uh, we, you know, the part of the turf that comes with it is just having a little less to say at various times. Uh, but we are still hoping to to follow things as much as we, we feasibly can, and we still do sort of uh, live it live in this world, albeit at, at perhaps one more removed than we used to. Um, and you know, I think we'll be looking for folks to to talk to and have conversations with who are more in it uh, sometimes than we are, and uh, look be on the lookout for those in the coming coming weeks and months. Um, but yeah, that's sort of uh, that's sort of the long and short of it. Dan, did you have anything you wanted to add on that score? No, I, I think you covered it all wonderfully. Okay, well, very good. So uh, about a couple of weeks ago here, three weeks ago, give or take, uh, Parliament returned uh, from its, its summer sitting. Uh, you know, everyone sort of got up, stretched their legs over the summer. Uh, it was kind of the first non-really COVID summer that we had, uh, you know, to various degrees of, of you know, non-COVID, I guess, because I got COVID over the summer. So uh, there you go. Uh, but we also have a new conservative leader in place, uh, Pierre Polyev, who I think, you know, we can safely put that one in the called it bucket like five years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, so what's been really dominating Parliament since his return has been inflation. But we, and we'll, we'll go to that. But first, uh, like, let's talk a little bit about the, the conservative leadership. Etienne, as our, as our resident conservative, what, what are the vibes? What are you feeling? So, I mean, just as, as we were prepping for this episode, um, we, were, we were having a conversation and I was like, sorry, remind me, who did uh, who did Polyev run against? I'm drawing a complete blank. Which, in fairness, is partially due to your inability to remember names, faces, dates, places, etc. But yes. Take, take faces <laughs> off that list. I'm very good with faces. Very um, good. No. And so, listen, I... I talked to a bunch of uh quebec conservatives and liberals before this or like in the in the lead up to the race and they all said you know don't underestimate Chirac. he's he's a fighter he's scrappy he's gonna do great and uh, boy did he not do great um sure did absolutely got steamrolled you know the number of uh members that were signed up in this race i think is enormous you know it um, absolutely demolished previous records for basically any party. Um, so a lot of momentum uh, around one particular candidate, um, and it really made for an unstoppable force. And so, you know, Polyev is in the midst of setting up his OLO. 
and to, to settle into the big job. And the, uh, I guess, the question, and I don't want to use the, the Romney Rubik's Cube, not Rubik's Cube, what is it? Etch-a-Sketch, that, that classic 70s toy or whatever um, example, or the, the P-word pivot, but it's a question of how is his leadership style going to change from opposition, uh, or sorry, from, uh, you know, opposition MP to opposition leader. Um, yeah. and, and what changes about the style to appeal to a broader audience than kind of the, let's say, nicher audience within CPC partisans that he has built up in the last few years. Um, and I think that's an open question. Like, I think a lot of people are expecting like a substantive pivot. I think I, th I think it'll be more subtle than that, um, that I, I suspect Pierre Polyev is genuinely who he is. Um, and so not, not a lot will change in terms of his style. Um, his messaging might just, um, you know, ebb and flow with the issue. To build on, on kind of what you said there uh, about, about CPC partisans, I do think that his campaign was very successful for having a lot of appeal outside of conservative partisans or traditional conservative partisans. And I, I think from what we've seen from that race and in terms of the, the engagement he was able to get, it was often from people quite outside of people who are usually the type of people to join political parties, uh, you know, like Bitcoin people, that, things of that nature. Um, a lot of folks who've been activated by, by COVID as an issue in the last couple of years. Um, so I, I think that that suggests a more limited scope for a pivot if he thinks that he can continue to engage people who are not traditionally political in the same way that a lot of folks who have joined leadership joined for leadership races in the past have been. Um, and I would, you know, strategically, I would agree that that makes a certain amount of sense that if you're able to, with what you're doing now, activate people who've not traditionally been active, then, then fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. Right. Like I think that there's some of that too. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the observations that's been made a number of times is about how kind of the, the plain speaking language of, Pierre Polyev has kind of been something that the left is jealous of, um, that the NDP look at what Jagmeet Singh has been saying and doing over the last several years and are kind of disappointed with their own leadership um, insofar as it tends to be much more jargony, much less appealing to kind of the everyday Canadian, much less appealing to them on economic terms, um, yeah. but rather kind of... Ac near near yeah, academic ideas of equity, um, <clears throat> things along those lines that, you know, there's there's obviously a place for that, but it's not it's not likely to resonate at the uh, at the general population level in terms of swaying voters in the same way kind of a, a hard hitting economic message tends to. Yeah, there's always been that tension in the NDP. And I think, you know, if you're if your thesis fundamentally is that, you know, you have to break out of the issues mold set by by two-party competition like i think it behooves you to find a way to cut through some of the noise and reframe some of the issues um and and certainly yeah i don't think that's necessarily what polyev is doing in terms of reframing issues i think he's just sort of expanding you know the conservative message to a new kind of universe of people who have not really heard it or have found it too politician-y in the past or something and and he's very good at that uh so you know not to take it away um but so I think that all of that is interesting in terms of, of what will will come strategically. I would say signs early on have been, you know, it's not very different so far from from what we saw in the leadership um, in, in terms of style. 
I think some of the I haven't heard him say Bitcoin in a while. Uh, perhaps that has something to do with the, the price of that particular speculative asset. Uh, but who knows? Um, but yeah, so another thing I want to talk about with with regard to him is you mentioned, you know, staffing up the OLO. Um, I think the impression around here was that it took a little longer than a lot of folks thought it would for a campaign that seemed to be the, you know, like th- this was written six months ago that he would be the guy. Um, so it seemed odd that he would scramble to fill some of those spots. It took him a couple of weeks to find a chief of staff, uh, imported a lot of people from the campaign, which while, it, you know, obviously that is fine, may not have been the original intention and, and, and they're making do with continuity. Uh, I, I don't really know, but uh, that that's perhaps one way to read that. So your, your comments on that. So in, in terms of the, the timeline, I, I think it's, you know, saying it's long is kind of an arbitrary unless we look at historical comparators, which I don't have at hand and I think would be reasonably difficult to find in terms of how long it took um, Andrew Shearer or Aaron O'Toole to staff up their offices. Um, but I, I think you are right in terms of uh, the chief of staff brought in as a bit of a, well, I was going to say outsider, but I don't think that's right. Um, just let's say a, a second tier figure in conservative politics. Sure. I, Perhaps. yeah, most recently active at the provincial level in, in the Doug Ford government. Um, not one of the um, kind of standard Ottawa figures that you would expect for that role. Um, which, you know, it's a good or a bad thing, depending on, on where you're sitting. Um, but ultimately, I think it's fine. I mean, uh, he has some time to get his, his legs under him and to have that uh, OLO get off the ground properly. One of the things that uh, surprised me a little bit about the Aaron O'Toole government, or sorry, not, not the Aaron O'Toole, alternate, <laughs> sorry, Aaron. alternate timeline, um, the Aaron O'Toole OLO was actually how much of the policy staff uh, there was continuity between from the Shear government and then, you know, a little attrition over time. The Shear OLO. Sorry, just <laughs> completely on one train of thought. Um, so I haven't seen like the the non-top line positions. Uh, I haven't seen names for like who are, who the four or five OLO policy people are going to be. Um, so it'd be yeah. really interesting to see if it's kind of a, a full uh, house cleaning from the O'Toole Shear days, whether or not there's, you know, really substantive changes throughout the ranks. We're seeing some of the changes within the, the party itself. Some of that is due to, you know, natural turnover. Uh, but it's a very different... I suspect it will be a very different face in all of those roles than we've seen in the conservative OLO um, under either Harper and Shear, which has, oh my God, just bad day for names, not Harper and Shear, uh, O'Toole and Shear, um, which had a certain amount of continuity within them. So far, it looks like there won't be a ton of continuity um, in terms of the, yeah. the poly of people staffing up. And I think a lot of that was for Shear and O'Toole was was keeping you know it was very much tried to be like we're keeping the harper train going in in an important way in terms of style in terms of strategy uh i think now they're turning the page on that in in a way that is important and remarkable i think yeah i I think there's also an element of how firm one has the reins of the party um that if you come in with anything but a resounding majority you are yeah. more inclined to pay homage to your predecessors, um, you know, vision people, etc., to keep them on board. Well, and bring in guys from 
Yeah, and bring in guys from the other camps if yeah, you have to, to, and, to, and to make thing. nice. But when you come in on the wave that Polyev has, I think you're, you know, I don't think he owes a lot to um, anyone else. You know, Leslin Lewis, the other candidates in the race, I don't think he really needs to throw a bone in many other directions in terms of recognizing um, what they brought into the party because of how resounding his win was. Um, yeah. But... You know, it's it's never necessarily a bad thing to do in, in the, the brokerage politics that is the House of Commons, uh, which is to try and keep as many people happy. I, I just think, and, and speaking, I think the pressure is lower. Yeah, well, speaking of that, uh, they did have an early defection, uh, which, which you know, Reyes. I think a lot of people thought was going to... Yes, Alan Reyes, who is, uh, um, I guess, Eastern-ish Quebec. Uh, Richemont Abesca. I, I don't really know where that is in Quebec. It's just writing names to me. It's that once you get out of a certain certain level of detail. Um, but yeah, so he was, you know, a fairly senior guy in caucus. I think he had been Shearer's Quebec lieutenant, uh, possibly. That sounds right. Um, that sounds correct to me. Uh, we, we really take facts seriously here at the Boys <laughs> of Short Pants. <laughs> um, but yeah, he had, been, he had been Quebec lieutenant. I do remember that. Uh, and yeah, I'm pretty sure it was here because he was down the hall for me when I was on the left. Lieutenant, yeah, please. Ah, so. oh, no, I will never, I will never say that Britishly. It's, it's not anyway. Whatever. Um, yeah. So him leaving, I think a lot of people take take the threats of like, oh, maybe I'll leave the party when they're made during leadership races. Not very seriously. I think they're they're kind of intended to to sort of get people to feel to feel boost a little bit about about voting for a guy that they might see as a little extreme and they're like oh well, what if this guy leaves and usually those threats i, I don't think bear out uh but this time it, it did and, and credit to him and i think uh they gave him a little bit of a of a smack on the way out the door that was perceived to be a little out of bounds of the normal uh, restrictions of civility here in ottawa and um, whether intentional or unintentional <clears throat> evidently um you know it seems like it was unintentional after the fact that it was perhaps a, a loose cannon in terms of... So can, can we clarify for listeners what exactly happened on his way out the door? Ah, of course. Um, <laughs> so af- after he announced his resignation, I believe it was text messages well, that went out. Importantly, his resignation as a member of the Conservative Caucus, but not as an MP. Correct. So he would be staying on as an independent MP until the next election. Yes. And so uh, a text message went out from, I guess party um or the eda i'm not clear on on the details here um but that basically said call his office and demand his resignation uh yes which you know i think it is within the scope of what is certainly you know fair game in politics is to try and and pressure MPs who are no longer in your party and, you know, whatever form that may take. But, I, but Yeah, I think so it, imposing some costs on defectors here is not, like, crazy to me as an idea. Yeah, but I, I think it left a, a bad taste in some people's mouths. And the story that came out afterwards was not... I, I think there was even an apology, um, which struck as a bit of a pivot in, you know, 24, 48 hours, whatever the story played out over. Um, yes. Which, you know... At the end of the day, uh, staff and politics are entrusted to do a, a lot of very important things and have, you know, passwords to um, important systems and web pages and accounts. Uh, and you really want to be able to trust those people to not be loose cannons and not try and, like, send out messages to impress the boss um, without, you know, explicit approval. Um, you do tend to want that. You do tend yeah. to want Initiative is valued, but sometimes you can have a little too much initiative. Yeah, which which seems to be what the the leading theories of, of how that happened. 
but nonetheless, kind of a, a regrettable incident, uh, incident rather. Uh, but we will see what um, what Polyev's caucus management style looks like. Um, as of course, with uh, every conservative leader faces substantial caucus management issues, um, it just takes time, be it, um, you know, one group pushing one particular legislative issue that is out of line with kind of the party more generally or whatever it is. There are always caucus management issues within, within the conservative party in a way that the NDP has a little bit, but the liberals tend not to have a lot of. The, the liberal ones seem to be kind of implied outbursts like the, the bozo eruption guy. Um, yes. Statements like that and kind of uh, simmering resentment. Um, and I yeah. imagine there's a lot of that in the Liberal caucus right now to, to various extents, especially around the backbenchers who realize they're never going to be in, in cabinet. But there's actually been remarkably few kind of uh, public outbursts or pushback against kind of the, the main party line that the Liberals have been pushing over the last few years. Yeah, and if you know, if we're if we're jumping into to a slightly further field speculation here, and I, we've talked about this in in the distant mists of, of time at some point, uh, but the Conservative Party, like in you know, you can, you can look at any map of, of any election, they tend to their safe seats are largely rural, uh, and they are not very competitive in terms of attracting nomination candidates. I think the Liberals mitigate some of this in terms of their safe seats being largely urban, where it is easier to find you know someone good to run in, like you know. Uh, you know, any urban riding in Montreal or Toronto than it is to, like, find a guy who, who really wants to run in, in Cypress Hills grasslands or something. Uh, it's just, there are more people there, uh, and it is just kind of easier to get them politically organized and in touch. Um, so I think that might have something to do with, with those challenges, is that the, the Conservative Caucus tends to be a little more immovable uh, in terms of nomination challenges, etc., than, than perhaps Liberal MPs are on the margin. If you have any thoughts on that, they're welcome. But otherwise, we can move on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. There are a lot of lifers, and they're changing the the rules for um, nomination, uh, competitive nominations in any of these writings are highly contentious, um, but, a, but yes. an issue we can talk about another time. Indeed. So you want to talk about the MGTOW thing, or can we skip that? Or did, did you want to? Did you want to touch on it? Oh, I mean, my my only observation there, and I guess it's something that the media just won't tell you. The mainstream media won't tell you. <laughs> but it's just like I think this was transparently liberal oppo. Um, like the liberals seemed very teed up. Just a little practice point here, folks. <laughs> teed up to the the nines or ten. That's opposition research done by the liberals. Um, there was always the question of, okay, when are the liberals going to start to build the narrative that they want to build? Um, and, you know, people were like, ah, oh, you got to hit day one as soon as he's out of the gates and kind of uh, crushes momentum in that way. And here we are a few weeks later, this story comes out, you know, I would imagine it's in the B tier list of oppo. Just, you know, you don't want to use your good stuff on, on day one. Um, but it feeds into the narrative I suspect they're hoping to build of Polyev, which is effectively that he, you know, attracts toxic hanger-ons. Um, and some of that toxicity leeches onto to him, and so that everyday Canadians don't feel comfortable voting for him, I imagine is going to be the thrust of the liberal narrative over the next, um, what is it, two years we have, if the, if the confidence and supply agreement holds up. 
Yeah, the word responsibility and responsible was, was thrown around a lot uh, in the first couple of days. And I also suspect that global journalists are not going into the metadata from uh, several years ago with the three, four-year-old YouTube videos. Yeah, the, the unstaff, <laughs> understaff. Yeah, and, and just I, I suppose we should clarify what we're talking about here, which we're, we're notoriously good at, <laughs> uh, which is that there is a, a four or five-year-old YouTube video that, that Pierre Polyev uh put up while he was you know just a you know a critic or, or opposition mp uh that had the 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 hashtag migtau uh which is men going their own way which uh, as dedicated report this post listeners uh will know uh is a is a online subculture of of men who uh, are not big fans of the ladies uh, at the end of the day yes I... uh, not not a lot of warm feelings towards uh the female gender I, th- I think that uh, is in that community putting it lightly and it's been obviously linked to domestic <laughs> terrorism in canada um most notably Did we had make town terrorists was the guy with a van in toronto not no he was an incel okay, he was an my, incel sorry my mistake yeah but okay <laughs> one, one small step removed a different a different genus of the same order if you will sure. uh yes um anyway don't don't need so, to go down yes. that rabbit hole. Um, we sure don't. <laughs> but what I what I think was really notable was just how quickly the liberal reaction was. You know, the next day, the timing. Oh, we are know, so outraged by this <laughs> that you can kind of look through the 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 forest. Oh. This has no place in our Canada. Yeah, you can yes. you can kind of see what was going on here, and you know, it's it's of course all. Just kind of the all fair, the, all the fair. Show yeah, of politics is obviously to try and maximize yeah. the hit of it, uh, but I I think it is absolutely something that likely came from the liberals um, rather yes. than. Though so, I mean, no no re- no one did force Pierre Polyev's YouTube guy five years ago to put the MGTOW tag in this. One hundred percent, and you know some of the conversations I've seen around it are people being like, ah, th- Jer- Jerry Butts coming out of the trash can with a Glock, just like no, you're putting MGTOW in. This. But just people being like, ah, this is the reason for his popularity. I think that dr- likely dramatically overstates the uh, the use of yeah, tags, perhaps the a little algorithms, bit. the impact of all the different things you can do on YouTube. Anyone attributing a single tag as like. The, the golden goose in terms of juicing one's uh, yes. social media has, I think, never used social media in a very in-depth way. No. Typically, there's are, you know, throwaway tags that are trying to loosely associate you with other topics to try and leech viewers from another topic. And yes. Though it is worth saying that the algorithm did love Manosphere stuff in like 2018, 2019. Oh, certainly. But if you wanted to yeah. go down that route and if this was, in fact, the golden goose and, you know, someone was really consciously putting a lot of effort into this... You know, there are 20 other tags you could have put in there as well to really g- commit to that rabbit hole and go down it, right? Um, yes. Not that I'm an SEO expert, but uh, having other, you know, various points were made about Rona Ambrose, Andrew Shear, and O'Toole, some of the other, like, associative uh, tags that were on those videos. Yes. So uh, I guess we'll pivot from that to to the sort of return of Parliament, what's going on there. And it, it will probably not surprise anyone to hear that Inflation, whether of the Justin or Greed variety, has been uh, a topic of heavy discussion among uh, the opposition parties in question period and elsewhere. Um, I guess where do we want to jump in on this? Um, I am interested in talking about kind of the NDP's response on some of this, which I have found. If you'd like me to go ahead, all good. Yeah, I can go there uh, to start with. I'm Um, not in consent. Very good. Um, So what I found interesting there and... 
the the canny listener might remember my my last episode or our last episode rather <laughs> where i talked about uh, I, the... I guess i'm not a canny listener as so i do not <laughs> um where we talked about the confidence and supply agreement which i i thought you know i continue to think to some extent uh might not have been the best idea in the world uh i do like that they are kind of stepping they're picking fights again which is good uh, and picking fights with with you know the CEOs of big grocery store corporations, which is always good, and, and fights that I have uh, encouraged them in past lives to pick. Uh, so I'm glad to see them do it now over over inflation. Um, and I think it gets at something important, which is that you know who pays for inflation is ultimately a political question. And the the standard sort of orthodox answer is that you know, the, the more unfortunate will pay for it through increased cost of living, of course, but also in the solution to inflation being raising interest rates to make people lose their jobs and, and through demand destruction. I think an approach that says we would also like rich people to pay their fair share of this and part of their fair share is, is not, you know, gouging people during, uh, you know, using this as cover for uh, for price increases well beyond what, what is, you know, covering costs that have, have increased, I think is, is a perfectly good place to go i also found they, they had a campaign about you know sending inflation fighting checks to people a bit ago which also had sort of economists howling and in tears and and once again like you know perhaps at the margin not the best idea in the world uh but i did like that it was at least taking a more combative stance about the sort of political economy consideration of, of how we deal with inflation and saying you know what not all of the burden has to fall on poor people here because ultimately when you're talking about inflation yes you are talking about cost of living but you're also talking about the sort of devaluation of assets held in, in nominal value. So it's, you know, that's the big money here. Uh, it's not it's not people's groceries. And, you know, the, the cost of living stuff is, is very real. Like, we all feel it, uh, you know, certainly in our household. Uh, it's, it's very noticeable, uh, the price of groceries and, and other things have gone up. Uh, so I don't want to minimize that. But it, it is just to say that it is encouraging to see the NDP take a slightly more unorthodox sort of stance on political economy than, than the Globe and Mail would like them to. So hats off there. My only observation is going to be, I guess, the inflation is is transitory question. Uh, you know, we, yes. we don't need to, to relitigate that that conversation from the last year. But it's just to say whether or not inflation comes under control in a very real way, kind of not only in Canada, but globally in the next year is, I think, going to be incredibly significant for the next um the next election whenever whenever that is predestined to occur. yes and mo much of it is out of our hands right like there's uh, a lot of global factors it's how does china deal with covid it's how fast does the federal reserve hit the hit the gas on on rate rate hikes like there, there's a lot of x factors out there that the bank of canada has no control over and certainly that you know other folks in in the canadian government ecosystem have, have even less control over so that's the nature of things sometimes it's completely out of your hands yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot to say on it. Um, yes. In, including the fact that just inflation has been deemed by the speaker as a uh, Re referencing the name as, of, a, of a member. But yes, but it's just inflation. Um, which recalls the little potato crisis of several years ago, <laughs> which uh, perhaps can't very very deep memoried observers of Canadian politics will recall. Uh, we do not need to discuss that one. You can look it up. <laughs> but yeah, kind of at a big level, uh, you know, it behooves the conservatives to blame the government. 
Um, yes. And so they are. Yes. If you can say it's all fiscal policy's fault, and 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 we can also blame the the Bank of Canada sort of as an afterthought there too. Wonderful, you know. But like, yeah. Sorry, I, I don't want to step on your toes here too much. I just the one thing about this is I, I find people being very precious my, about my like, toes are very oh well, crunchy. the NDP. The NDP is oh, it's oversimplistic to blame you know greedflation. It's like well, it's also oversimplistic to blame fiscal and monetary policy to some extent because we live in a global economy and we're a small open economy and that's the nature of things. Sometimes is they're out of your control. Yeah. So and this is obviously the tension between like the economists of the world and the political partisans of the world is guess what? It is a very convenient political narrative to blame the person um, who is running the country. Yes for the things that go wrong in said country um, yes and it's not even unfair it's not even unfair you know like is it is it the fairest thing in the world no and, but and, that's politics is not fair so far <laughs> people want to pearl clutch and say well you know that's not that's not exactly the cause and effect here let me explain the cause and effect absolutely but putting that into the government's hands is what opposition parties have been doing since the dawn of time is to be you know explain yes. why this isn't your fault and yes. in, in and until you do, we're well not until you do. Even after you do, we're going to continue. We're going to continue <laughs> blaming you for it. So, yes, as it should be. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's one side of things. The other side of coming back to Parliament that I think is is interesting is we're now in our third year, second year, second full year of um, sort of virtual Parliament mm-hmm. um, or the hybrid Parliament. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So a lot of folks are keen to see this stick around. A lot of folks are not keen well, to see it stick around. So let, I think we'd like let to... Me, let me give you an ahead. example of, of folks on one side of that equation. I was scrolling Twitter the other day as any um, good... Brain damaged individual will. <laughs> yes. Like myself as well. Um, yeah. And Catherine McKenna had a post. Um, she loves to tweet. That's absolutely. for sure. Um, and it was about, you know... It was a picture of Parliament from, I don't know, a hundred years ago, um, and a picture of Parliament today. And you know, Parliament has changed in a hundred years. Why is the way, or the world has changed in a hundred years? Why is the way that we're conducting Parliament not changed? Which I and then linking it into the like women um, to appeal to women needs to be more flexibility in the workplace for young mothers and families and, and things along those lines, which I think is all very valuable. But I think it's not an unmitigated good that there is a real loss to the institution that happens um, as parliament, you know, as voting is something that is done on stage. Um, or can be done off the side of one's desk you know, with no... Or on one's boat. Or on one's boat <laughs> with no attention paid to what they're actually voting on without the you know the physical demands of actually being in the chamber. Um, and I guess you had an anecdote about this the other day about hearing that uh, MPs' offices are no longer hiring legislative assistants and they're just, instead using the, the available capital to just further staff up their constituency offices... Yeah, this is not universal, but it is something I've heard some offices have done, especially of, of MPs who are more newly elected, like who have only been in the hybrid parliament. Uh, because, it, yeah, it, to zoom out a little bit, like you mentioned voting and voting is, of course, an important function of MPs, but it's not really like the core of the actual parliamentary work, right? Like the parliamentary work in many ways is the sort of uh, is the committee process. It's I mean, being in Ottawa, just period developing you know, connections with, with other people in your caucus and the other caucuses and, and 
be existing in, in an environment that is political and that is oriented towards at the end of the day passing bills you know um and that's that's valuable and i think uh yeah like i i did hear that anecdote about about how newer offices and some newer offices i won't you know paint with too broad a brush here because it's just something i've heard on as a one-off but uh you know if if we've just basically turned parliament into a system where we have 338 service canada ombudsman's people's offices who happen to be elected and you have five or six staff who are in in the riding, and then the the MP comes to Ottawa maybe once a month or something. Like you don't really have a legislature at that point. Like you just don't. And then it's what does that do for the untrammeled you know um, authority and the discretion of the executive at, at that point? If you just simply do not have a real parliamentary opposition or even a, a parliamentary government caucus uh, because you know we saw a lot of changes to for instance the 2017 small business tax changes that were proposed coming through liberal backbenchers um and i you know uh it's it's concerning for how people will have access to government in the future if the only way you can really interact with your mp is i'm you know my my ei isn't claim isn't going through or i have this immigration file or whatever and that stuff is valuable and and like i, I don't want to knock constituency work it is valuable i have said before that it is we do seem to be an anomaly of a country where we essentially have a a very very sanctioned and, and smiled upon sort of use a political connection to, you know open as it is to get administrative files resolved within the yes, government. It's somewhat of a failing um, in and of itself that that function it is somewhat of a failing on, for instance, immigration files. That yes, when, so so when your your question or your uh, when you can go to your MP and MPs have special channels into um, departments. That's a bit strange. Like but the, the program should just work very ideally. Yes. Yes. Instead of yeah. handing so, out special Uno Trump cards. Yes, it is very odd. So if we just go towards that direction where there's no real legislative work done anymore, and you to take a, a recent example. So um, Michael Geist, uh, you know, uh, who, who is a, a lawyer and law professor who specializes on, on various media and, and other issues, uh, intellectual property, I suppose, to some extent. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little ill right now, so I'm, I'm trying to hack and snort my way through this episode as best I can. Um Wrote, wrote a piece about his engagement on, on the big uh, media bill. I believe it's C-18. Is that right? Um, let me pull it up here. It was C-11. In the... It was C-11. Okay. No, but, it, uh, but is it now C-18? It's C-11, C-18. I think it's both. Okay. Okay. Very good. I think these are two different ones because I think one of them is the, the broadcasting bill from the last parliament, which was C-10 and is now C-11. And C-18 is the like media. An um, act respecting paying for ads communication one. platforms. Yeah, so that's C-18, yes. I think. Okay. So he had... this. Sorry for this aside. It's really beside the point. But the, uh, the the long and short of it is he was talking about his engagement through the committee process and he, how he you know, expressed a lot of disappointment in it. And and look, committees have never been, like, perfect places. Uh, and they have been, you know, partisan sideshows occasionally. Certainly I've participated in my fair share of those. I've also participated in my fair share of very thoughtful committee processes where where people really worked together and you know got to thoughtful places on, on policy issues that mattered uh and certainly it, it's a bit what he observed was that the, the committee's chair hetty fry uh was not actually chairing the committee from ottawa but was chairing it from home and seemed to have absolutely no idea what was going on in the committee room in ottawa which to me is a bit of a dare like it's important to note that if you're a committee chair or a committee vice chair you get a you know, 
not a giant pay bump, but a reasonably substantial one. I believe we, we checked before the show, and I believe for committee chairs, it's about $13,000. And uh, it's half that for um, for vice chairs, which, you know, it's it's not like crazy money, but it, it's good money. And the expectation is that that's to help you address the additional time and effort demands of, of chairing a committee. And if you're chairing a committee on a, you know, government bill clause by clause process, and you just cannot be bothered to show up to Ottawa to to have a sense for what's going on in the room. Like, not only are you doing your, your government caucus a disservice, but like, what kind of value are actually making and adding that, you know, that Canadians are getting back from you as, as a lawmaker and as, as you know, someone who's, whose job is to sit in that seat in Parliament? And I take the point that... You know, like, and we we had an interview with Nathan Colin on this very program several years ago, and he famously is the guy, the guy with the worst commute in Canada. You know, I think I think it's very fair to say that 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 was a monster of a commute, uh, and he had you know young family and the rest of it, and and there are MPs who have young families, some of them you know on the west coast, things of that nature. Uh, it, it is hard, and, and people have often remarked on on the personal toll that that being a parliamentarian can take on people. So I'm not I'm not cold to that. I think that is a real issue. I do think the kind of no questions asked, anything goes kind of nature of, of where we currently are in the hybrid stuff is really serving nobody. I, I don't think this is a healthy place to land. And I, I guess it would be the Board of Internal Economy or would set these kinds of rules. But I I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of of the mind that I think this has to get revisited and, and tightened down upon a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and I, I, I really do think that's the answer, right? Is that it doesn't need to be a, a 180, a complete reversion to where we were three, four years ago. Uh, and special accommodation should be made, I think, for people with yes. you know, family, young kids, what have you. But if that is the policy objective, pursue that with targeted policies rather than yes. completely changing the operations of the legislature in hoping that, you know, that is covered somewhere along the way. But I think in practice, what we're seeing is a lot of MPs kind of disengaging from parliaments in very real ways. Um, you know, to, to use the example of uh, a fellow who appeared on camera naked once or twice, like coming back from a <laughs> run, it kind of puts parliament, you know, parliament is a work from home style position is, I think, not the level of elevation that it that it requires in a country in terms of how how serious legislating for the entire country is. Um, yes. And I don't want to over-romanticize the institution, but I think it is important that no, it we, works. We've, you know? we've like, talked in the past about how much friction there is, you know, being an MP. And, you know, that, yeah. that friction is good or bad, depending on whose shoes you're in. But a lot of the friction was, I think, kind of tedious to have ministers in meetings and having to literally scramble out of those meetings um, to run across town to get to a vote in time with 15 minute bells or 30 minute bells or what have you. Um, folks not being able to travel um, outside of the NCR, the National Capital Region, because the WIPS office needed them there, because there was no flexibility around voting, because there, you know, all, all of the various reasons. That did make it very constrained having folks in Parliament having to rotate shifts um, into the wee hours of the morning when Parliament. Um, was, was doing like marathon, was doing sittings, marathon yeah. sittings in often in June. <laughs> like a lot of that has a lot of inconvenience for the MPs. Um, but also this is a job that only 338 people in Canada have. It's something that they opt yeah. into. It comes with substantial privileges. Um, you know, this is the nature of the beast and changing it so that it's kind of more akin to a, 
an office job that anyone can do anywhere in the country, I think is not to the benefit of, of the institution or the function. Well, and on, on the subject of the legislative staffers thing, like I think it's really important to emphasize how little engagement the typical MP has with legislation uh, and with the legislative process. And I think having staff in Ottawa who know how to read a bill and can do basic you know, legislative analysis and can sort of get you through committee meetings and, and know how to like formulate good questions to witnesses and, and do sort of the legislative strategy around a variety of things. And frankly, do do the other side of things, which is like the, you know, the, the critic or the critic work in the case of opposition. Um, that is really important is how you can move agendas forward nationally. And it's not to knock the work that constituency assistants do by any means, which I think is really valuable is, you know, beyond the service role, there's also organizing and outreach work uh, that is obviously significant. But I think if you go down to it, people often complain that MPs, uh, you know, just take marching orders from from the leader's office. And, and I think if they stop hiring legislative assistants, you're certainly going to and their sort of capacity to, to do their own legislative work. Like you're certainly not going to help that trend if you think that that's a bad thing. You know, like it's uh, it, you're going to have to kind of eat that that particular cake if, if you want it. Yeah. And I, I think if you look at the incentive structure of it, if there isn't the hard push for people to be in Ottawa and to put up with those frictions, then the incentive structure and, and the MPs who anecdotally we've, we've heard are doing this, it makes a lot of sense from their perspective, right? Like, if Yeah, the votes are in the writing. If, if your job or if you see your job as fundamentally about making your constituents happy and being reelected, well, guess what? Sitting at a committee meeting doing clause by clause for a bill on whatever it is, um, is not going to make very many of your constituents happy. The number of constituents who are aware of that even going on is, you know, very, very small. Why would you not tune your office to be all about serving constituents in terms of passport applications, all these other things, um, and providing those and then showing up at, you know, ribbon cuttings for the local yeah, doing the events, Boston doing the pizza or the local... <laughs> Uh, Good example. Try, I can't think of another white spot. There's a there's a classic BC oh BC, BC one very restaurant. good restaurant. Um, and like oh and for, a Montana you know and you while want. you're doing that ribbon cutting, your phone beeps. You have to punch into the app and click yes on the thing that the government are or that your party has already decided that you should click yes on. You click yes, you know, completely not thinking about what what the vote is or the implications of the vote or any of that. And I think I. Think your characterization as Service Canada ombuds people is completely, completely on point. Um, even though you know in many other systems and jurisdictions, this role, this constituency helping role, is completely foreign, um, and it, it is yeah. a function that does not exist in a lot of places. Because why should it? Why should there be? Yes. Um, why should our legislators? And our members of parliament be people who help you with a passport form. <laughs> like, why? No one would ever think to invent that function if it did not already exist. No, it is very strange. Um, well, and I guess that takes us to the other side of things, which is like government services should probably work. Uh, <laughs> and many, speaking of the passport application in particular, I, many people had difficulty with those this year. Uh, so it, it does sort of come with the territories. If you, if you don't have a, a functional system, you're going to have people who do try to get service outside of it I suppose. yeah let, let me create a a backstop to service canada to the federal government staffed entirely ad hoc by members of parliament who work in offices with backgrounds that have nothing to do with you know the bureaucracy and give them special powers to reach in 
and try and manipulate files. Like, it's just, none of that makes any yes. sense. It does not particularly. But, and also, it's important to note that constituency offices don't just do the sort of what's called casework, but it's also, you know, as you mentioned, like planning events, that kind of thing, doing political outreach and communications within the writing, which I think is, is you know, that's, that's a legitimately political legislative role. I mean, not legislative in the sense of working with legislation, but, you know, as a legislator. Um, but yeah, it's uh, constituency work is, is the lion's share of it these days, for sure. And, and legislative work seems to be declining in importance. So a trend to watch, for sure. I, I worry about it, and I worry for the institution. <laughs> Um, and, and the, the thing is, is fundamentally, like, there's only room for so many MPs to have a national profile and legislative work and, and people in your office who can do good legislative work is important if you are an MP who aspires to have or has national profile. But if you're not one of those several dozen, it's a, it's like, it's hard, it's easier to get into the space that Tan was describing where you think like, well, I'm going to go back to the ribbon cutting at Montana's because there are no votes for me here. And their ribs are delicious. All you can eat on Thursdays or whatever so as opposed to the the nasty ottawa downtown scene yes so one of our many fine royal oaks (laughs) yes so i mean that takes us i think to a to a short conversation on just like the absolute failing of uh federal services we we've remarked on this before that the split between direct service delivery between the provincial governments and the federal government in Canada is uh, fairly substantial. Provincial governments tend to do a lot of direct service delivery. They, you know, healthcare, um, teaching, all of those things, uh, driver's licenses, uh, infrastructure, various other services. Yeah, that's not services. I think people can, people can think of lots, provincial services. Lots of I think you got it. There's <laughs> lots of things provided by any, anytime you go to the provincial government offices and, you know, renew a form or what have you at the federal level service ontario um it's a lot less um i haven't been to that many service candidates in my life um when i have it's been almost exclusively related to passports i think yeah like there's ei passports ei passports if you're a veteran obviously you'll have much more engagement um but outside of those i guess immigration being the other one the federal government yes. doesn't do a lot of services. so Indigenous Services Canada, obviously a big service provider. Sure. Yeah. Um, but what I think what I think strikes me about the crisis that we had this summer, kind of the, the nothing works summer, was it seemed to me that what wasn't working was so concentrated at the federal level. Um, you know, earlier this pandemic, um, on this podcast, we remarked on like the potential long wait lines for uh, driver's licenses, going in, doing driver's testing, um, as my wife had to do that. Um, but it strikes me that none of that or a lot of that ha- pressure has been eased. And we aren't seeing a lot of reporting about, you know, massive wait lists to get driver's licenses. Instead, it's passports. And as you dig into the passports thing, it seemed like it was somewhat avoidable. Um, there's a question of how much of this is attention from federal civil servants um, not wanting to return to work, which is a very live question in Ottawa at the moment. Um, if you're ever on the R Public Service, Public <laughs> Servants subreddit, whatever, Canadian Public Service subreddit, um, you will see kind of a, a unanimous consensus that returning to, um, you know, two, three, four days in the office is 
um, not great. And I would say the Starship Troopers memes are excellent. <laughs> yes. though, I have to say, and I, and I would say I'm doing my part. Some jobs can very much more be done remotely, but they're you know being frontline workers in service positions in the government of Canada are not really jobs that can be done remotely. Um, so it just struck me that this summer that it seemed to be largely provincial failings in terms of service delivery, whereas the bulk of service delivery in Canada is at the provincial level. And I'm not sure if there are and untold you... stories at the provincial level and it's a function of our media environment, um, but I, I stand to be corrected in, unless I'm missing large swaths of, of failures across the country. With the exception, of course, well, I of mean, uh, Let me... Yes, I, that, I that's, that's where you're going. Health is going to be a very different thing. Very different issues at play. One, global Here, pandemic. I, two, long-term yes. issues in the healthcare systems. Here's what I would describe the, the fundamental difference. Yeah. Is that the passport one, to me, is a hard-to-explain failing. Where the healthcare one, you can look at any number of things, including the, the you know, the vast global pandemic, the in Ontario, the, the bill sort of capping um, remuneration for healthcare workers, etc., and, and the general state of the healthcare system that, you know, has been, you know, sort of tottering for years. Um, all of that sort of, you, you have a healthcare system that's not working. You say, okay, well, you know, point to any one of those things, but there's probably, you know, a bit of, bit of column A, a bit of column B to all of it, but, you know, whatever. Uh, you look at the passport stuff, and, and I think people had thought, like, oh, it's a big spike in passport applications. It turns out it was not a big spike in passport applications. It was slightly below usual volume still, because um, at least that would have been an explanation that kind of made sense. Uh, but yeah, so it was just hard to explain. Um, and you know, there've been other sort of like immigration related difficulties in the last year with, with sort of crisis after crisis with Afghanistan and Ukraine. Um, but yeah, I don't think anyone would look at those, uh, situations and think like, yeah, that was a plus for sure. Yeah. I guess the most apples to apples comparison I can give is passport offices versus driver's licenses. What fundamentally, yeah. what is the distinction? You're going to an in-person wicket, you're presenting paperwork, you know, the passport form is a little longer. Um, and then an official document is being produced. I get that passports probably require a fancier printer. Uh, but like, that's about as similar as these two processes can get between provincial and, and federal governments. And yet, I have not seen comparable stories in any of the provinces about, you know, these kinds of surges. Well, no, it's, it's not the surges so much as the failings to actually be able to deliver on the services. And I don't know if yeah, I don't know what the unique factor um, in Ottawa, yeah. well, yeah, in Ottawa or across the country is, uh, as many of those offices are located in uh, in various provincial capitals and elsewhere. Indeed, uh, I think we can we can probably call it there for today. Uh, we're at fifty minutes, give or take. It's like the so shortest episode ever. I think... Oh no, it's not. We've had shorter ones. Um, thank you, as always, for listening to the Boys Short Pants. Um, uh, my apologies once again that it has taken us so long to to deliver a, another fine audio product to your ears. So, uh, you know, my uh, sincere apologies to everyone here at the Boys in Short Pants. And uh, Hugo has been fired as the intern for, for failing to manage our <laughs> schedules accordingly. We have replaced him uh, with Hugo. Uh, he, got, he got his job back. It's impossible to hire people these days. I don't know if you guys have heard. Uh, so we just we had to go back to the well. So here we are. Um, yeah, thanks again. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at shortpantspod. You can rate and review us at all of the usual places. Please do if you haven't already. Uh, and, and perhaps don't mention that we, we sort of had a little six month oopsie. Um, <laughs> if you, you know, just do us a solid on that one. Uh, but we otherwise, rarely, we rarely uh, ask favors. 
We rarely ask for anything from you. Um, and haven't we given you so many hours of joy over the years? Come on, th- throw us a bone here. Uh, with all of that, uh, thanks once again for listening. And we will talk to you next time, hopefully sooner. Bye-bye.